does P.T. Barnum, Don Quixote, and Salvador Dali have in common? After a failed entrepreneurship, Joshua Norton in 1859 proclaimed himself Norton I, Emperor of the United States and later Protector of Mexico. Some had said after his bankruptcy, Joshua suffered a psychological break because he emerged years later with his alternate persona. If that was the end of the story, well, then that would be the end of the story. But he also submitted many decrees that some would say could be a little unorthodox. Decrees are usually an, uh, an official document issued by a legal authority. These decrees ranged from dissolving the United States of America and abolishing Congress to declaring that a bridge be built. Today we will take a look at the life of the first emperor of the United States and, found I, bleh, and find out why instead of the city of San Francisco ordering him immediate psych psychological treatment, he was ordered to come to dinner parties, attend grand openings, becoming a public figure, and was beloved and welcomed by the city. Thank you for tuning in to My Little Cult. I am Aaron Morrell. This is a show that highlights the unorthodox and weird from history. You can trust me. I've done this 17 times. Anyway, we're here tonight, as usual, in the Kali Ma. Please wipe your feet before you come in. Gather around the fire. There'll, there will be snacks a little later. Be sure to tip your waitress and waitresses as we travel back in time in America when wild ideas were the norm and it was fashionable to be eccentric. So let's all bow our heads as we dive into the world of Emperor Norton I. Joshua Abraham Norton was born to Jewish parents John and Sarah Norton in the Kentish town of Deptford, England, which is now part of London. According to the Emperor Norton Trust, he was born on the 4th of February, 1818. Two years later, young Joshua, with his parents, older brother Louis and younger brother Philippe, who was born on the boat, or some would say on voyage, set sail from London with the destination of South Africa, where his father had already built a successful ship's chandlery. Chandlery? Chandler? Chandlery? Chandler Bing? The move to Cape Town in South Africa in 1820 was part of a government colonization program. They were part of a group uh, that came to be known as the 1820 what the Twinley Settlers, the 1820 Settlers. Nine more siblings were born over the next decade, but while John Norton's family had grown, his bank account did not. He was borderline borderline bankrupt. As the oldest son, Joshua, in theory, would have been the primary heir to his father's estate. If he wanted to inherit his father's debt remains to be seen, whether he did and, if so, how much was left um, after the creditors had been paid, perhaps by liquidating the businesses, is totally up in the air. Documents that are lost or transactions that were just never recorded. Joshua left Cape, Cape Town in November 1845, but before, well before the deaths of his parents and his nearest siblings. Louise and Philip between May 1846 and August of 1848. In Liverpool in early February 1846, Joshua boarded the Boston ship Sunbeam, which sailed for Boston on February the 10th, arriving in March on March the 12th. There are often repeated historical claims that Joshua Norton arrived in San Francisco on a specific vessel, 
the Francesca on November 23, 1849, and he had 40 stacks on him, and he would turn that into a nice round sum of $250,000. That is the equivalent of $9.6 million in today's money. After arriving in San Francisco, he started the Joshua Norton and Company, Company, I guess, and put Dad's money into commodities, importing, and real estate speculation. And by 1852, he was one of the richest men in the city. He was meeting the right people and going to all the big fancy parties. He had kind of made it, and it felt good. There was nothing in the world that was going to stop him now. And he had had... Uh, the same amount he had had the same amount of enthusiasm as your phone does fresh off the charger in the morning in december that same year norton thought he saw a business opportunity during the 1850 china during the 1850s china faced a severe famine so they placed a ban on the export of rice causing the price of rice in san francisco to increase from thir- from 12 to 36 cents per pound when Norton heard that the Glide, a ship that was uh, returning from Peru, was carrying 200,000 pounds of rice, he bought the entire ship for $25,000, or 12.5 cents per pound, hoping to corner the rice market. The shortage drove the price of rice up 900%. He put down $2,000 on the Peruvian rice ship and was to pay the rest on the 22nd. Joshua was so pumped. He was about to make a ton of money and be out ahead on the rice game. At least he thought, um, because over the next day or two, and then over the next weeks, ships carrying rice started to pour into the harbor one after another. And what made it worse, um, most of the new rice that was coming in was way better quality than what Joshua had bought. So if you know anything about economics or supply and demand, then you know what happened next. He sold his boat for three times what he paid for because he was there first and called 12 cents on the pound infinity, so there's no going back. No takesies backsies. And everyone was okay with this, and he retired and lived happily ever after. Or, uh, for nearly two years from early 1853 to late 1854, Norton and the rice dealers were involved in protracted litigation. That doesn't sound like cornering the rice, cornering the market on miniature pasta. Although Norton won his case in the lower courts, the case reached the Supreme Court of California, where it sounds like there's a little more common sense who ruled against him in October of 1854. Later, the Lucas, Turner, and Company Bank foreclosed on his real estate holdings in North Beach to pay off his debt. He filed for insolvency in August 1856. But thankfully for our story, Joshua did not feel deflated, unlike your phone battery after your usual 10-minute bathroom session in the morning. He kept on running newspaper ads, selling some of his commodities, although by mid-1857 the ads kind of fizzled out. Randomly in September 1857 he served on a jury for a case about a man accused of stealing a bar of gold from Wells Fargo and Company. <laughs> and in August 1858, he ran an ad announcing his candidacy for U.S. Congress. Well, that makes perfect sense, and it's only natural that's what his next step would be. He is not a lawyer per se, but he has plenty of courtroom experience. He has the bankruptcy, and that time he was juror number three under his belt. 
By this time, though, he was reduced to living in a working-class boarding house on Kearney Street, which was, I'm sure, well below what he was used to. He continued to announce his candidacy, candidacy for U.S. Congress in August of 1858. But when the election took place in September of 1859, he was mysteriously not on the ballot. According to the Emperor Norton Trust, there were, this is where Joshua Norton slipped into a reclusive depression, and that's why there were fewer public appearances of him during this time. In July 1859, he took out yet another ad in the San Francisco Daily Evening, Evening Bulletin. Evening, darling. The ad was a brief manifesto, and addressed the, it, it was addressed to the citizens of the Union. He spoke about the national crisis as he saw it and proclaimed it was time to act. A little more than two months later, just 10 days after the election in September 1859, Joshua was, back a, Joshua was back in the pages of that same new newspaper with the following published on September 17, 1859. At the peremptory request of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested to hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in Music Hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing, in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate almost had it all oh, perfect the evils under which the country is laboring and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity it was signed norton the emperor shoot what was it signed norton the first emperor of the united states if joshua norton or emperor norton were alive today he would probably oh thank you two seconds late he would definitely be... Well, let's try it now. Let's try it see what happens. If Joshua Norton or Emperor Norton were alive today, he would definitely be an influencer. He would be on TikTok. He would have his own podcast, YouTube channel, the whole thing. Like uh, many people that do go viral, he quickly became a novelty and a local celebrity in San Francisco. While he didn't possess any official political power or any authority, he did gain recognition and fame within the city. His proclamation of becoming Emperor Norton is what essentially got him known to the city. This act, along with his eccentric behavior and unique attire, drew attention from the residents by the bay. People were intrigued by his audacious claims and his particular way of expressing himself. Norton's regular presence on the streets of San Fran, where he would often often engage with the public, public and share his decrees, further contributed to his notoriety. His proclamations covered a wide range of topics, including politics, economics, and some progressive social issues that we'll get into. Although not legally binding, his decrees were often published in the local newspapers, building up his visibility and pretty much ensuring that the public remain aware of his activities and goings-on. Over time, he became a little bit of, he gained a little bit of popularity, started to grow a little bit of a following, and became a beloved figure in the city. His kindness and eccentricity uh, and unique place in San Francisco's history contribute to his status as a local celebrity. 
People appreciated his harmless and often humorous antics, embracing him as an emblematic figure of the city's colorful past. One of his novelties was his imperial walks. These were a regular part of his routine and contributed to his public presence and recognition in San Francisco. During these walks, he would parade through the streets of the city, um, often wearing his elaborate self-proclaimed imperial regalia. This included a, a military uniform and a hat adorned with various medals and decorations. Check out Instagram My Little Cult for pics. And according to reports, whenever he was seen in a new uniform, it was custom made by the hands of a soft-hearted tailor or the local militia donated one. Sort of how I receive um, half my wardrobe. The purpose of the Emperor's Walks was not only to ex exercise, but also to engage with the people of San Francisco. He would interact with locals, accept greetings, and sometimes engage in conversations with residents and the tourists. The sight of Emperor Norton on his walks became a distinct and familiar part of the city's landscape, and he gained a reputation as a beloved and eccentric character. These walks were just a small gesture that um, helped solidify his image as the self-proclaimed Emperor of these United States, and his presence on the street of San Fran added to a touch of whimsy and curiosity to daily life. People would often show him respect, and he became an accepted figure in the city, with his walks being anticipated by the local community. Emperor Norton's unique status and popularity in San Francisco led him to becoming invited to dine at various establishments, ugh, establishments both high-end and more modest ones. The diners he was invited to and the gifts he received demonstrated the respect and admiration that the people of San Fran had for him. Emperor Norton was often invited to dine at the most upscale restaurants in San Francisco, and most were honored to host him. They saw it as a mark of distinction and a way to show their appreciation for his presence. He would receive complimentary meals, and, you know, those are always the best. The emperor also organized and hosted no-host dinners, where he would invite the public to join him for a meal. These events were typically held in a, in a public space or a rented hall, and attendees would BYOB, BYOF, BYO, whatever. These dinners allowed people to share a meal with the emperor, and it was, and it was considered an honor to be able to contribute to the jovial and communal atmosphere that encompassed him. He evidently was a charming guy, like these dogs back here. Are you done? Anywho, where was I? He had a loyal following of admirers and would often show their appreciation by offering him gifts. These gifts range from small tokens of admiration to m more substantial offerings. There were some small, endearing gifts like flowers, books, clothing, um, decorative objects. And there were times, though, when members of the community would provide financial assistance to the emperor. This support would often be voluntary and be driven by a desire to help him maintain his regal appearance and status. People would give him money to cover the cost of his clothing, his supplies, or other necessities. There was such a missed opportunity right here, though. He could have totally started a cult. I mean, come on, where else would this story go? He could have they could have they could have bought up a you know, like a block of San Francisco and called it Norton Land and be self sustainable. But um that usually goes down a dark path, so maybe he always had good intentions. 
While specific records and details may not be widely available, these accounts reflect the general sentiment of the people of San Fran toward Emperor Norton. He was considered a cherished and respected figure, and the gestures of free dinners and gifts were a way for the community to express their affection and admiration for him. According to the Emperor Norton Trust, predictably given the scenario, man suffers financial calamity, proclaims own majesty. Questions about the emperor's sanity began to follow him. His biographer, William Drury, argues that in fact there was no single snap between 1852 and 1859, before which he was completely normal, but rather than there were signs of the emperor to come, well before Joshua Norton arrived in San Francisco. As to what happened after September 1859, in the travel documentary, Timothy Speed Levitch put it this way, some say he had gone mad, others say he had gone wise. Hmm. Although some would say he was um, getting a bit out there with the often used preferred method of the preferred method of the newspaper proclamation, Emperor Norton called for many things in the 1860s and 70s that were well ahead of their time. He was an adversary for or of corruption um, and fraud of all kinds against it, political, corporate, and personal. He was a persistent voice for fair treatment and enhanced legal proclamation protections for immigrants and racial and ethnic minorities. Maybe because he was an immigrant himself? He demanded that African Americans be allowed to ride public streetcars and that they be admitted to public schools. He commanded that the courts allow Chinese people to testify in court, and he pronounced that the eyes of the emperor would be upon anyone who shall counsel any outrage or wrong on the Chinese. He said that in he said that if any African-American caught committing a crime um, should be tried by his own people on his own land. And he was a religious humanist and pluralist who favored church-state separation and warned against the dangers of puritism and secretism, refusing to lean toward one church or synagogue, but rather attending them all. And he prohibited the enforcement of state Sunday laws, which at the time, ironically, discriminated against Germans and Jews. He supported women's rights uh, to vote. He was a defender of the people's right to fair taxes and basic services, including well-maintained streets, streetcars, ferries, and trains. He was an exponent of technological innovations that enhance public welfare, and his support for these projects shows his compassion for the city. I wish someone would step up and let the city know where I live, how bad the roads are, the city, is, the streets are way too rough to drive on. You'd think uh, I would need a therapist for all this pavemental distress. <coughs> so let's get into some of these decrees he was so famous for. And this is where he uh, was grabbed for a ladder because he was reaching for some new heights. So make yourself comfy. Comfy? What is comfy? I don't know. So let's go ahead and try that again. Make yourself comfy. The first one comes to us on December 12, 1859, about three months after he first declared himself emperor. In the decree, he dismissed Governor Wise of Virginia for hanging John Brown and appointed John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky to replace him. In October 1859, Brown led a raid on the Federal Army, Armory of at 
Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which is West Virginia today, intending to start a slave liberation movement that would spread south. He had even prepared a provisional constitution for the revised slavery for United States and everything. He seized the armory, but seven people were killed and ten or more were injured. Brown's plan was to arm the slaves with the weapons from the armory, but only a few slaves uh, joined his revolt. I guess they had noticed that those of Brown's men who had not fled were killed or captured by the local by the local militia and the United States Marines that the latter led by Robert E. Lee, and uh, Brown was tried for treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, and the murder of five men and inciting a slave insurrection. And it was a jam-packed celebrity event. Besides Robert E. Lee witnessing the execution, he was joined by John Wilkes Booth for some reason. I guess uh, they thought they were witnessing the death of the war on slavery? Not so fast. Oh, also, Brown was the first person to be executed for treason in the history of the United States. Another decree comes to us on July 16, 1860, to dissolve the United States of America. Pretty straightforward. This one that year, that same year, October 1st, um, barred Congress from meeting in Washington, D.C. I wonder how that one went. I don't remember hearing about that in history class. Uh, see. The next one didn't roll around until after the new year on February 5th, uh, 1861. He wanted to change the place of his national convention to Assembly Hall near the corner of Post and Kearney because Platt's Music Hall, where it was previously, had burned. And that's interesting because the boarding house, the boarding, the boarding house he was living in for a time was on Kearney Street. Was he uh, still living there, or was this a opportunity of convenience? I'm not sure um, if this next one is a decree or just an announcement. On September 17, 1861, a new theater, Tucker's Hall, opened um, with a performance of Norton I or An Emperor for a Day. Or maybe that was an advertisement? I found no mention of a play by that name at Tucker Hall, on the internet anyway, the next one doesn't come to us till over two years later in October, and it is a sad piece of news. Trigger warning ahead. Lazarus, Norton's longtime dog, passed away. And if you don't know by now, we here at My Little Cult love dogs. There are two right out here guarding the Kali Ma as we speak. Doing a pretty good job, I think. So I couldn't let this story go by without a fitting tribute. And much to my delightment, there was one right here in our own story. With just a little bit of digging, I found a cartoon drawn up by Edward Jump called The Wasp. It shows Norton I as the Pope performing the funeral service for Lazarus. Those in uh, attendance were some very well-known San Franciscans, San Franciscans, San Franciscans of the time. Uh, Norton I had two dogs, according to reports. Famed San Francisco writer Samuel Dickens wrote two versions of the Bummer and Lazarus story. The first endearingly called San Francisco is my home, where Dickens wrote Bummer and Laz Lazarus went everywhere with him. No theatrical performance opened in San Francisco from 1855 to 1880 that three complimentary tickets for the first row of the balcony were not put aside for the Bummer and Lazarus and Norton I, Emperor of the United States. 
It was a custom that held until that tragic day when his beloved mongrel, Lazarus, died, and thousands of San Franciscans followed it to its grave where it was buried as a ward of the city. That's nice. In um, the 1950s Dickens book San Francisco Kaleidoscope, he offered a second version of the death of Lazarus. In October 1863, a fire raged in the city. Through the streets came roaring the brave men of the volunteer fire companies, the St. Francis Hook and Ladder, the Columbia Eleven, the Knickerbocker Five, and the Washington Hose. Are those double-A baseball teams or the fire companies? Anyway, one of the trucks ran over and killed Lazarus. It was not known which truck it was, although each company sorrowfully claimed the credit. The body of Lazarus was stuffed, and although the supervisors claimed it, the remains went to a purveyor of hard liquor named Martin. He paid the taxidermist $50 and put the mortal remains of Lazarus on public display. Man, what a obscure time to live. But I still feel a little touched, um, but not, not that kind of touched, but touched on the inside. Not like that, but moving on. On February 14, 1864, Norton was back in the public eye like Jake Paul in another boxing match. He traveled to a town called Maryville to join the celebration of the opening of the railroad. How quaint. Shortly after that, Mark Twain, you might have heard of him, he wrote an epitaph for Boomer, or I'm sorry, Bummer, Lazarus's, uh, Lazarus's longtime buddy. But on January 21st, 1867, things got a little dicey for our emperor, like that time in Monopoly when everyone realized that I had a hotel on Boardwalk. An overzealous patrol special officer, Armad Barbary, Barber, yeah, arrested His Majesty Norton in involunt for involuntary treatment of a mental disorder. Ensue chaos and major civic uproar, for real. It was like that time in Monopoly when everyone realized I had a motel on Boardwalk. Chief Police Patrick Crowley apologized to His Majesty immediately and had him released. Several scathing newspaper editorials followed the arrest. I bet they did. After this event, all police officers... Anyway, get this. After this event, all police officers in the city of San Fran began to salute His Majesty Edward Norton I when he passed them on the streets. How awesome. Two years later, in 1869, Norton asked the city of San Francisco to advance money to Frederick Marriott for his ship experiments. Frederick Marriott, born 1805 in England but died in 1884 in San Fran, was a publisher, publisher and early promoter of aviation. Creator of the Avator, Hermes Jr., the first unmanned aircraft to fly by its own power in the United States. And the plane, and on its premier fight, Marriott crashed into an abandoned building, knocking him out of the plane, but into a hole on the side of the building. It's intentionally knocking himself out. He woke up in a daze, but was rather well-rested, and this is what gave him the idea to create a global, partnership-focused, revenue-driven, innovative, customer-centered, expansive, brand-oriented chain of hotels that would eventually spread worldwide, but this is not that Marriott. I just made it all up in my head just now. Please don't go anywhere. Um, there will be donuts at the end. Uh, this guy, the, the pilot Marriott, in 1841, in London, England, was one of the three board members of the Aerial Transit Company. Others were the others were John Stringfellow and William 
Samuel Henson. Marriott was responsible for the illustrations and publicity campaign for their planned aerial steam carriage, dubbed the Ariel. Is that the same kind of irony as when a scarecrow wins the award for best in uh, field and the prize is in an unlimited supply of corn? Oh, the aircraft allegedly captured the imagination of the public and the company constructed and flew a small glider, but after plans to build a larger working model never materialized because of lacking funds, the company failed. Henson married and relocated to the United States while Stringfellow continued aeronautical experiments. And Marriott moved to California during the gold rush of 1849. There's a copy here of the original print of a decree from August 1869. They spoke, of a, they spoke a different language 150 years ago in America, but I will give it my all. It says, Norton I, die gratia, emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico, being deserious and allying of the dissensions of party strife now existing within our realm. Do hereby dissolve and abolish the Democratic and Republican parties, and also do hereby decree disfranchise, disenfranchisement and imprisonment for not more than ten nor less than five years to all persons leading to any violation of this imperial decree. Um, North Sign Norton I, given at San Francisco, California, this twelfth day of August A.D. 1869. His notion to abolish political parties reflects his perception that party politics contributed to division and conflict within society, right? By calling for the elimination of the Democratic and Republican parties, he aimed to create an, a more unified and harmonious political landscape. This was just an example of his unconventional and independent thinking. And that idea got me thinking. Did his actions, like this one, provoke discussions about the role of political parties in society? Hmm? In 1863, when Napoleon III invaded Mexico, Norton added the title Protector of Mexico to his moniker. This was the invasion of the Second Federal, Federal Republic of Mexico, launched in eight, late 1862 by the Second French Emperor of Napoleon III at the invitation of Mexican conservatives. The invitation was intended to overthrow the Federal Republic of Mexico, which had defeated a challenge by Mexican conservatives in a civil war, who sought to establish a monarchy in, pub in Mexico with the aid of Napoleon III of France. Just caught a mosquito. December 15, 1869. Norton I, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, left San Francisco to seek his yearly tribute from the legislature and the lobbyists. He inspected the new capital during the gala ball celebrating the, billion, the building's inauguration, and interestingly, the very next day, he, in one of his official decrees, demanded that San Francisco clean its muddy streets and place gas lights on its streets that led to the capital. Is that a weird coincidence? I don't know. By the 1st of August, 1870, he was known to be living at 624 Commercial Street, northeast San Fran facing Treasure Island, and his occupation listed as emperor. September 21st, 1870, a decree from Norton that uh, the Grand Hotel furnish him rooms under penalty of being banished. Two years later, in March 1872, he declared that a suspension bridge be built as soon as convenient between Oakland Point and Goat Island. 
and then on and then on to San Francisco. September that same year, Norton the first, presuming presumably thinking of the community, ordered a survey to determine if a bridge or tunnel would be the best possible means to connect Oakland and San Francisco. He also ordered the arrest of the Board of Supervisors for ignoring his decrees. After all, after the first of the year, uh, he thought that a worldwide Bible convention be held in San Francisco on this day um, would be a good idea. March 1873, David Belasco made a stage debut at the Metropolitan Theater playing Emperor Norton in the play The Golden Demon. Okay. And on January 8, 1880, Norton I dropped dead on California Street at Grant Avenue. He was on his way to a lecture at the Academy of Natural Sciences. The next day, headline in the morning call read, Norton I, by the grace of God, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, departed this life on the 10th, and he was buried in Masonic Cemetery. The funeral cortege was two miles long. 10,000 people turned out for the funeral. But uh, June 30th, 1934, the city of San Francisco uh, and the San Franciscans decided that they didn't want him lying over there anymore, and they went and picked him up and moved him to Woodland Cemetery. All was quiet until January the 7th, 1980, when the city marked the 100th anniversary of his death with of their only monarch, with the uh, lunch hour ceremonies at Market and Montgomery Streets. It's time to take a step back and examine our outlier, Emperor Norton I. I led, um, who led a market, bleh, remarkable and unique life that has, has left a lasting legacy in the history of San Francisco. After I heard his story, I began to see there are many key aspects of his life and the legacy he has left behind. His eccentricity and charisma paired well with his eccentric behavior, including his self-proclamation as emperor and his elaborate regalia. His charisma, including his, his charisma, mixed with his theatrical presence and interactions with the public endeared him with the residents of the city. He also was a symbol of kindness and compassion and was known for his benevolence and generosity. Generosity? You know what I mean. He would often often help those in need, including providing financial assistance and advocating for the rights of marginalized communities. His, his acts of kindness and compassion earned him admiration and respect from the people of the city. Emperor Norton of the United States symbolizes his vision of a harmonious and un unified society. He advocated for racial and religious tolerance, often attending events of different cultural communities and encouraging inclusivity. To the city of San Fran, he became a part of an enduring symbol and their history and spirit. His story is celebrated through festivals, parades, and even a dedicated walking tour in the city. His, leg his legacy has become an intricate part of San Francisco's folklore and cultural identity. He has inspired various works of literature, music, and art. Numerous books, plays, and songs have been written about him, capturing his persona and the impact he had on the city. His story continues to captivate the imagination of artists and writers, and myself, and maybe you too. Overall, Emperor Norton's life and legacy highlights the power of individual compassion 
and the enduring fascination with unconventional figures who challenge societal norms. His story serves as a reminder of the unique characters who can shape history and the impact they can have on the communities they inhabit. At the beginning of the episode, I asked, what does P.T. Barnum, Don Quixote, and Salvador Dali have in common? Well, P.T. Barnum, the American showman and founder of the Barnum and Bailey Circus, was known for his flamboyant and eccentric personality. Like Emperor Norton, Barnum understood the power of spectacle and capturing public attention. Both figures were skilled self-promoters and attracted public interest through their unconventional personas. The fictional character Don Quixote um, from the novel often associated with eccentricity and a fervent pursuit of chivalrous ideas. Don Quixote's delusions and grandiose self-perception as a knight errant parallel Norton's self-declaration as emperor. Both characters challenge social norms and embody a sense of idealism. Now, the, the surrealist artist Salvador Dali shared Emperor Norton's taste for quirkiness and theatricality. Both figures cultivated unique appearances and behaved in ways that challenged conventional expectations. They both captured the imagination of the public and left a lasting impact on their respective domains. And with those extremely weird thoughts out of the way, we've come to the end of today's service. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end. I hope you learned something. I hope you were entertained. And I hope that you'll want to check out the uh, Emperor Norton Trust website. That's where I got most of my info today. And if you'd like to support me in an easy and fun way, you can go over to your local review area and just let me know how I'm doing. And if you can't do that, just tell a friend who enjoys history, enjoys hearing me screw up about my little cult. Feel free to check out my other episodes for more weird and unorthodox stories from history. Until then, keep an open mind and definitely stay curious. Oh, oh yeah, and before I forget, donuts!